0: So welcome to the podcast for um, CSOC 603, uh, Discussion Board Feedback. Um, In this podcast, I'm just going to offer my sort of um, reading of the discussion board posts and uh, have a little bit of a a reflective sort of analysis to what was posted on the discussion board. So let's get started. Uh, For discussion board number one, there were three questions. The first question was, can you think of examples of hegemonic masculinity or emphasize femininity in your own life or community? And there were a number of examples that were given, um, one being around masculinity, hegemonic masculinity, and what constitutes, quote, a real man. And again, things like uh, physically and emotionally and athletically strong being associated with this idea of real men. People gave examples of their own communities, and one in particular was the idea of uh, coming from a farming community and that those ideas around hegemonic masculinity and emphasized femininity were still very much in place just by looking at who did what in those communities. So men were still associated with physical work and women with domestic and reproductive labor. Many of you talked about hegemonic masculinity, and emphasized femininity when it came to the workplace. And so examples given were things like nursing, and nursing being a profession that is predominantly um, uh, feminized, and, uh, you know, with more men entering the profession in terms of being, becoming male nurses, you know, what, what does that, what, what are the consequences of that? And how does that sort of influence these dominant notions of emphasized femininity when it comes to the profession and um, also what does it mean in terms of hegemonic masculinity. And there's lots of research out there, particularly on the nursing profession, that looks at the increasing number of male nurses and, you know, the kinds of consequences, both bad and good, um, that has to do with seeing more men in the profession. One of the negative consequences is obviously questions around gender identity and sexual identity when it comes to men in a Uh, largely female-dominated profession. Um, You know, there's also research out there that says that actually men who are nurses get promoted faster, more opportunities, particularly in management. Um, Then I saw that there are quite a number of posts in terms of, you know, just um, particular skills that are associated with ideas around um, leadership and who is automatically seen as leaders or the breadwinner or um having uh being more intelligent particularly where it comes to issues around education and again hegemonic mas- masculinity has become associated with a lot of these ideas around breadwinner and leadership and intelligence and um whereby women are who are often trying to enter into um areas or avenues where it requires um, skills like leadership face particular challenges because they're still cast as uh, within this idea of emphasized femininity and being associated with you know reproductive and domestic labor so that even when they do enter into spaces um, in, public, in the public like workplace um, and paid employment um, and particularly male-dominated professions they're very much a um, undermined in those spaces they're often questioned about how they're going to balance their life aka how are they going to still work and uh, continue to do the reproductive and domestic labor that is automatically associated with notions of emphasized femininity Um, yeah and then some one post in particular talked about education and that you know where it comes to opportunities particularly for higher education women are often downplayed and men are provided with opportunities because of you know it goes back to seeing them as being leaders uh, in in also being seen as breadwinners and so there's more emphasis on their education as opposed to women the second question was how does the invisibility of privilege operate and how might you experience privilege based on gender class ethnicity ability and or sexuality And it was really interesting, some of these posts, um, there was quite a few posts. uh, And I think what I found quite interesting was this discussion around emotions and who's allowed to see uh, emotions and, uh, sorry, to express emotions and who's not. And that the ability to be able to express emotions is a privilege, which I agree. And women do have that privilege, so to speak. But we also have to be careful of what is, um, what can disguise itself as a privilege. So while we know that there are benefits to actually being able to express emotions, um, we also have to keep in mind that the expression of of emotions is seen as weakness not just in, in men, yes, in men in particular, but also in women, right? That's why there, it's allowed or seen as more acceptable for women to be able to express emotions because of the fact that women are also conceptualized or constructed as being the weaker gender, so it's seen as acceptable. So while there is a sense of privilege, it is also a double-edged sword because what is considered a privilege is also something that can be used against um, women. Um, other areas where you talked about the invisibility of privilege were things like, um, you know, the, the the again, back to the idea of, of, of emotion is the idea of um, uh, uh, sorry, scrap that <laughs> um, is the idea of um, people looking at, Uh, the area of emotion and the language that is associated with emotion and the expression of emotion. So um, the idea that men are told to man up if they show emotion. I think the point I'm trying to get at here is that there's a way in which we can actually look at how that privilege is rooted in the language that we use. So women, when they show emotions, are not subject to these kinds of um, what I would call Uh, censorship kind of language which men are where it comes to emotion so that yeah absolutely that that is a privilege i mean this language that we use is a way to reestablish uh those gender boundaries right telling men to man up if they show emotion is saying that you know um don't you know you need to um uh, keep up the dominant um narrative of what it means to be be a man there's also people talked about the idea of, um, you know, the disability that the privilege based on ability. And I think that was a really good, um, someone pointed it out and that was really good because we don't often talk about the privileges that are associated with ability. And that just shows you how embedded, um, you know, uh, Um, disability is or ableism is in our society, so that we don't even talk about disability tells you the amount of privilege that we have, uh, those of us who are able bodied have. Um, Then there was also about looking at professions and the way that they are gendered, and how that offers privileges to those who are seen as belonging to uh, particular professions um and even what was interesting again as someone pointed out in the field of nursing is that even this is technically seen as a feminized profession when men enter that profession yet there are um disadvantages that they have but there's also privilege and the fact is that men who enter nursing often end up in management roles and uh, more so than women and that that goes back to the Uh, stereotype that men are seen as leaders, and so on. Um, I think one of the most important posts that was made was the idea that someone said, you know, it would be, you know, maybe consider looking at privilege a different way or approaching it of a different way. So instead of not noticing the privilege, because they have it, maybe they don't notice it, because they don't have to deal with the implications of not having privilege. And I think that's an important thing is when you don't have to deal with, and that's what privilege means, is if you have white privilege, you don't have to worry about dealing with racism. If you have, you know, um, uh, gender privilege, you don't have to worry about dealing with patriarchy and misogyny and so on. So I thought that was a really good way of actually positioning it and um, Again, it goes back to dominant groups, whether it's men, white uh, white people, people with um, who don't have disabilities. They don't have to think about um, their struggles because they don't have to deal with them. Okay, the next question was about interplanetary theory. What do you think of interplanetary theory of gender difference? um why it appeals so strongly to people and many of you gen- generally said it's easy it's comfortable we are conditioned are social socialized to think in terms of these binary ways um it's easier for us to categorize people and we are a society where um we actually put people in boxes and label them, and that's just how we make sense of our society. And the reality is that it allows us to be more comfortable with anticipating certain behaviors, you know, attitudes, expectations, and that, you know, when it comes to gender, we live in a gendered society. And so this is how our society is organized. It begins at birth, you know, we're put into these categories, we're um, you know, uh, notions of gender difference, norms, practices, expectations and standards and rules are all all of those organize our society. And it appeals because many of us um, have accepted the that this is our the reality of our society and we become accustomed to it. But the question then becomes for people who don't fit into these uh, boxes that we've constructed as being normative, um, it's not easy. And, um, and, and, and so this also goes back to privilege, right? Um, When you are cisgender, and uh, there's a lot of privilege associated around that. And, and as someone else posted on the discussion board, which I think was important is that when you question this interplanetary theory, And you're questioning the organization and the setup of societies. And to do so, uh, to disturb that is to invite consequences. And sometimes those consequences, many of times those consequences are not positive. Okay, Um, let's move to discussion board number two. And this again had three questions. The first was about comparing how biological theories of gender and sexual theories explain women's mis. Sorry, underrepresentation in science, technology, engineering, and math or the STEM fields. And which of these theories do you believe to be more convincing? Well, the majority of you said that, um, you know, there is no biological difference in terms of uh, men and women when it comes to mathematical processing or performance or so on. And that most of you said that, you know, it really had to do with the way in which. We have been socialized and sort of the stereotypes associated with men and women when it comes to particular professions and that you know boys have been encouraged from a very young age to engage with um, math um, and sciences and so on and and that's you know even in the kinds of toys that they are given and and what kind of um, behaviors and ways of um, uh, thinking and expression are associated with those things so So the opportunities are there for for boys to develop the kinds of skills needed to be proficient in math. And uh, that's sort of, you know, not the case for for women. And so therefore we see the consequences of this. And also for women who do want to go into the STEM fields, they're sort of discouraged. However, that's changing more and more. And there's a big push, particularly in terms of our uh, Western society and um, in the global south for women to actually enter into these fields but again there's also you know other sorts of um, uh, competing uh, n- uh, competing interests that are sort of um, seen to be more uh, or seen to be more um, appealing uh, to women on the part of some some people so you know uh, oftentimes, women uh, sorry families don't discourage their girls from going into nursing but they'll discourage their sons or you know are they um uh, won't discourage their girls from going sorry they won't discourage your boys from going into the trades but they will their daughters and so on so these are also you know even though we tried as a society to promote this the um There are other forces that are working against this. One could be our families, our communities, others can be the profession itself. So when women do get into the STEM professions, uh, they do face a lot of um, discrimination and backlash in terms of the profession itself, because it is still, um, you know, STEM professions are still male-dominated. Let's move to the second question. So, despite the debunking of sociobiological theories like social Darwinism, can you think of an example of how these theories are being used today to explain gender differences? Um, Someone gave a great example of female entrepreneurs and the idea that the, you know, entrepreneurs are the expectation is that they are male. And this person talked about just the, you know, getting access to funding. It's easier for a male entrepreneur than it is a female. And that, you know, the kinds of support or the resistance that, you get uh, as an entrepreneur is also very gendered so that uh, female entrepreneurs are often questioned about how they're going to you know, balance their work with their family obligations and, and so on. So that oftentimes female entrepreneurs feel an immense self, sense of pressure to prove themselves. Um, and that means not just prove themselves in the field, but also being able to um, balance uh, domestic and reproductive labor alongside their professional work. So work-life balance. uh, Again, there is that expectation that men don't have to prove themselves in the workplace. um, But women do, because again, they are expected to balance work and home and to be successful at doing it at it. And that goes back to, you know, how we are socialized in terms of, you know, what those gendered expectations are. Um, Another, another um, issue that was, Raised was that uh, men's the kinds of behaviors, aggressive behaviors, and um, how they're linked to uh, testosterone. So when we think about these sociobiological theories, there is still a lot of um, you know, discussion and um, theories and and the that link aggressive behavior with things like testosterone. Um also, You know, there is stuff around um, these sociobiological theories and linking it to things like women's, uh, sorry, uh, linking it to leadership and the idea that it's, you know, men are just natural leaders and women are not. And that's how we, have you know, biologically uh, evolved. So, you know, and they will relate it to things like, you know, hunter-gatherer society, men being hunters and leaders and so on. And so this creates barriers for women who attempt to go Uh, enter into leadership positions, what it also does is it normalize this um, model of leadership that is really based on the ideal, dominant ideals of a leader being a male, heterosexual, um, uh, white, able-bodied person, and that who who, um, is the ideal or stereotypical ideal of a leader. And so those models of leadership are really um, constructed around the lifestyle of those dominant um, Figures, and so when women enter into leadership, they oftentimes have to um, operate as leaders within a framework that really does not recognize or works against them. And you know, you see this in popular culture, where women who do make it in leadership talk about the idea of leaning in and so on. And um, another example, which I found really interesting, was someone talked about ADHD and how it manifests itself differently in boys and girls, and and again how that. Um, those stereotypes around boys and girls and their behaviors can lead to misdiagnosis or late diagnosis of ADHD, particularly for young girls. Last question. Hollywood's often portrayed non-gender conforming people in simplistic and derogatory ways. Can you give examples of a current movie or series not mentioned in the text where this happens? Be sure to explain your examples. And lots of you answered these questions, which was really interesting. One of the, you know, you gave examples of um, like things like um, Dina from Superstore and how, you know, she was uh, a, uh, you know, seen as a a woman, but um, her mannerisms and behavior um, sort of uh, reflected that of a, a male. And then you talked about, um, you know, the same thing where uh, this idea of people who don't fit into these ideas around gender, how they how they subvert or, or transgress these boundaries. And what happens is they become fodder for comedic relief, right? So they become someone who can be laughed at, right? Um, another thing that was sort of really raised was the idea of transgender and when, how transgender people are often portrayed in the media. And the same thing, you see this as um, there's a um, sort of monolithic representation of someone who is transgender, that there can't be any variance to this, this archetype. And, you know, some people mentioned Dallas Buyers uh, Club, or, um, and how, you know, it, it presents this one dimensional sort of um idea of somebody who is transgender and then also you know one one of the examples given of it was in um cartman who was i forget south park and you know he goes and he puts a bow on his head in order to use the women's washroom and when he's challenged he talks about transgender rights and you know, that is uh, that that narrative is extremely dangerous because it trivializes the seriousness of the issue of using a bathroom when you are a transgender person. And those are often usually those spaces of violence. And you know, transgender people have to really seriously think about entering a bathroom where they may experience questioning and violence and being challenged, and there's lots of consequences with it. So, again, um, you know, the way that these issues, identity issues can be trivialized and take away from the seriousness uh, seriousness of, of, you know, um, non-conforming gender identities. Um, uh, So lots of other examples, too many to go through, but really, really good. And I enjoyed reading uh, many of the posts. And so keep it up. I'm looking forward to reading uh, the next series of posts.